Good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for American Progress. My name is Jonathan Moreno. I'm a professor of medical ethics and the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania and a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, David Michaels here this afternoon. Uh, I've known David for many years. He, uh, he is uh, highly respected in uh, epidemiology and in health policy. Um, he is a research professor and associate chairman in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services, where he directs the department's doctoral program. Since joining the school in 2001, much of Dr. Michael's work has been focused on the use of science in public policy. He directs the project on scientific knowledge and public policy, bringing together a group of scientists to examine the use and misuse of science in two forums in which public policy is shaped, the courts and the regulatory arena. David was nominated by President Clinton and confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the Department of Energy's Assistant Secretary for Health, uh, Environment, Safety, and Health from 1998 through January 2001. He was the chief architect of the initiative to compensate workers in the nuclear weapons complex who developed cancer or lung disease as a result of exposure to radiation, beryllium, and other hazards. Since its enactment in 2000, the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program has provided more than $1 billion in benefits to sick workers and their families. In February 2006, Dr. Michaels received the American Association for the Advancement of Science and Scientific Freedom and Responsibility Award for his work on behalf of nuclear weapons workers and for his advocacy for scientific integrity. He is also the recipient of the American Public Health Association's David P. Rall Award for Advocacy in Public Health and the U.S. Department of Energy's Meritorious Service Award. David Michaels uh, has written uh, a, a trenchant, well-documented, uh, somewhat dispiriting, but necessary book. Uh, um, I had a, a lot of fun reading it over Memorial Day weekend. Um, on the whole, although uh, it is a, in many ways a challenging read and uh, one that should be of great concern to Americans, it is, in the final analysis, hopeful. Uh, which is the uh, the reflective of uh, of David's personality as I know him. So, uh, welcome, David, and we uh, look forward to a discussion after your presentation. Uh, thank you, thank you, Jonathan, uh, and I'd like to also thank before I begin uh, Reese Rushing and the the staff of the Center for American Progress here. Um, several members of my staff from George Washington University, the Project on Scientific Knowledge and Public Policy. Celeste Montfortin and Liz Borkowski and Chrissy Morgan are here, and um, I'd like to thank my wife, Gail Drach, who's here today as well. Um, I think I'll, I'd like to tell this really as a story. I'm going to talk about the book and the story it tells and how it lays out, how I laid out historically, and give you one of the more, um, what I think are appalling or, or uh, terrible examples in the book. Um, and then try to talk a little bit about the lessons from it. So I, I think the place to start is tobacco. I think it really did all start with tobacco, and that's where the, the um, title of the book comes from. There was a tobacco executive who unwisely put to paper the, the, the uh, phrase, doubt is our product, since it is the best means of competing with the body of fact that exists in the minds of the general public, is also the means of establishing controversy. How did we get to this point? Really, it began in the 1950s. In 1950, five studies were published linking lung cancer and cigarette smoking. And at that point, the evidence really was quite overwhelming, but um, this was early in epidemiology, 
and I think it may have been a shock to some people, but the tobacco industry saw immediately they were facing a problem. John Hill, the founder of the worldwide public relations firm, Hill & Knowlton, came to them and said, you have a problem, you really have to address it, and I'll, here's, here's the strategy how we do that. Now, Hill did this, he had some experience, he had been working for the chemical industry before that. There was a, a congressional hearing on carcinogens, on cancer-causing chemicals in food, and Hill advised the chemical industry essentially how to, to fend off proposed legislation that would limit the chemical contamination of food. He was very successful. Um, the, actually, as an aside, the, the congressman who led the investigation was James Delaney from New York, later was able to get legislation passed, which became known as the Delaney Clause. But for many years, the chemical industry was successful in pushing them back. And Hill was in charge of that operation. And then he went to tobacco and said, you need your own research. It may be mercenary research, but you need sort of opposing research to essentially convince people that those other studies weren't correct enough. Not that they were wrong, but to raise uncertainty. And that really began in the 1950s. And the tobacco industry successfully opposed those, that science for quite a long time. And it's remarkable. And all the documents which explain exactly how the tobacco industry do, did that are on the web, of course. The University of California, San Francisco has a website with millions of pages of documents. And they're wonderful to read. Oh, excuse me. Um, how do I get to this? Excuse me. Um, view, slideshow. Okay. Among the things the tobacco industry did was they actually published their own journals. They put out journals, they put out newspapers and magazines aiming at policymakers, but also at scientists and physicians. And the memos that described them were very clear. They said, focus on controversy. Anything that, that raises questions about studies are what you should promote. And um, I linked to them all on our website, defendingscience.org, and it's worth reading them because they really are remarkable. Um, it was an extraordinarily successful campaign, worked as, you know, for many, many years. Um, Hill and Knowlton then went on to market their expertise much more widely, and this is what's much less well, well known all through the 70s and 80s into the 90s when different industries, different corporations were fa faced crises around environmental exposures, um, Hill and Knowlton went to them and said, we can help you. And I was able to obtain some documents around their, essentially their sales pitch to the beryllium industry since I worked at the Energy Department, which was the primary user of beryllium for many years in the United States. Um, I got to see all of these. And essentially Hill and Knowlton described how they were successfully able to help not just the tobacco industry, in fact, in their literature, they never even mentioned tobacco because that already was so tainted, but how they helped other industries. And um, they put out a series of case studies, which I've posted as well. Here's one example. This was around fluorocarbons, or freon, as it's better known, and ozone depletion. As many of you will recall there was um, some science done in the 1970s suggesting through modeling that the release of fluorocarbons, which were in, um, you know, essentially used in as a propellant in aerosol cans was causing a hole in the ozone layer. Additional studies all confirmed this, and as Hill and Knowlton explained in their own sales pitch, public concern and fear about the future caused fluorocarbon users to look to alternatives. Hill and Knowlton was asked by DuPont to help calm fears, get better reporting of the issues, and gain up to two or three years before the government took action on fluorocarbons. And they did. And that's exactly, they were successful in essentially putting off action until DuPont could essentially produce a replacement chemical so they didn't lose any market share. And we got two or three more years of a hole in the ozone, ozone la layer. 
level. And of course, the um, scientists who did that work received the Nobel Prize. So the science wasn't exactly bad science or anything, but the, science, the scientists who did the work essentially showing that chlorofluorocarbons was the cause of the problem. But you could see essentially what happened. The, the public relations industry figured out how they could sell this service elsewhere, but then essentially they were eclipsed, I believe, by, by scientists themselves who saw that this was a lucrative endeavor, that rather than let Hill and Knowlton figure out how to do this, the scientists themselves started setting up their own firms. And out of this, we have this new industry, um, which is called, they themselves call it the product defense industry. Um, scientists who understand how the regulatory system works, how to produce studies that defend products in regulation or in, in court, um, they will produce literature reviews, data reanalyses, interpretations. Occasionally, um, they'll do studies themselves. But it's all, of, in my view, very of questionable value. Um, the, st the studies these firms produce for their clients are very much like the accounting work done by some of the accountants at Arthur Anderson for the Enron company, until both companies went bankrupt, of course. They appear to play by the rules of the discipline, but their objective is to help corporations frustrate regulators and prevail in, lit in litigation. We see it over and over again in this case. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how this works. Uh, the Weinberg Group is one group I write about, and I try to write about several of these groups. Weinberg Group is a group that worked extensively for the tobacco industry and um, fronting for them in places where the tobacco industry didn't feel like they could um, expose themselves, say this is tobacco doing it, so they had the Weinberg Group do it. Um, they mar this is what, from their marketing material, asbestos, tobacco, pharmaceuticals, we're all next. Uh, you know, They will go to companies and say, look, look what happened to asbestos, look what happened to tobacco, it's going to happen to you too. Of course, it's a good thing those things happen to tobacco and asbestos, in, in my view, of course. Um, and, and the thing they stress is that chemicals should have presumptive innocence, that they should be innocent until proven guilty, and they are the advocates, they are the defense attorneys in the science world for the chemicals, and they will help make sure that they're not found guilty. Um, this is an example that this was on the Weinberg Group's website until I started writing about it, and I wrote an article in Scientific American a few years ago, and they pulled this case study from their website, but fortunately I kept a screenshot. Uh, now, I think those of you who follow the Food and Drug Administration know that the FDA essentially forces a drug off the market for one of two reasons, and they have to be pretty good reasons. One is if it's shown the drug just simply doesn't work, the FDA will say take it off the market. Or the other thing, if the FDA shows that it's the risks associated with the drug badly outweigh the benefits. Obviously, all drugs have some risks, but if the benefits are small and the risks are great, they will, after a great deal of turmoil, force a drug off the market. It doesn't happen much, but it happens. So the Weinberg Group here boasts the FDA proposed cancellation of a registered new drug that requires a hearing, et cetera. Um, the work that the, the Weinberg Group did led to an extensive process with a written appeal from the first decision leading to 10 additional years of sales before the ultimate cancellation of the drug. So whatever this drug was, it either didn't work or it's risk outweighed the benefits. We had 10 additional years thanks to the Weinberg Group. Um, now, they've, by the way, since writing, I wrote this book uh, talking about the product defense industry, they've changed their website. And they now call their work product support rather than product defense. But it's I, I saved all those screenshots, too. Um, I think it hurts all of us. And this is, um, uh, Dilbert understands this as well, um, who he writes about recommending weasels to write articles casting doubt on doubt. That's what people see this. It's hurting all of, all of science. It's hurting scientists because we're being seen like the accountants at Arthur Anderson. 
Um, so I want to give one case example of something which um, I became deeply involved with, only because I was teaching about it when I was teaching a course in environmental health policy at George Washington University. Uh, OSHA issued a proposed chromium standards. Chromium is a chemical commonly used in the workplace. It's um, a metal that's um, extremely toxic. A hundred years ago, 80 years ago, factory workers had a trick. They would take a dime, put through one up one nostril and pull out the other because acute chromium exposure caused nasal perforations. It was a terrible condition. And fortunately, by the 1940s or 50s, it was a little bit under control in the United States, so we stopped seeing those. But it was discovered again in the 1950s that, that chromium exposure greatly increased risk of lung cancer. And there's no debate over this. It's a, it's a very powerful lung carcinogen. Um, OSHA had never gotten around to updating their workplace protection standard, which had been based on preventing these holes in people's noses, um, you know, based on 1920 studies. And OSHA, had many, many people had pushed for OSHA to issue a new standard. Finally, they were sued by um, the Oil Chemical Atomic Workers Union and, and the Public Citizen Health Research Group. They lost in court several times. But um, it became clear in the 1990s to the chromium industry that at some point OSHA was going to strengthen the standards, going to start protecting workers. Um, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, had decided to do a study of a factory in Baltimore, not to learn more about how to protect workers, but because this was a public health problem across the board. If people were exposed environmentally to chromium, the only way we could learn about it was by studying workers. So essentially, the 1990s was a, a period of challenge to the chromium industry, saying, well, we may actually have to start cleaning up our factories. Um, what did they do? Well, they hired some of the veterans, what I call the tobacco wars, some of the same scientists who worked for tobacco, who cut their teeth, essentially questioning science, questioning studies for the tobacco companies, met with uh, chromium industry uh, executives, and I'll tell you how I got these documents a little bit later, um, and they came up with a strategy. And we're gonna, they're going to critique the studies done by a famous scientist named Tom Mancuso because they were powerful studies. We had to make sure we got things in the literature questioning those studies. Um, we could seed the peer review literature with other sorts of, of critiques and and literature searches and reviews saying, well, this lung cancer problem isn't very real. And we could try to get the raw data from the EPA study, and we could reanalyze it, essentially, to make the results go away. And um, they had this meeting in 1996 where they talked about doing that. Um, of course, they decided, and this is interesting to watch the minutes of this, they, they said, OK, we'll hire this company. It was actually a couple of scientists from a company called Chemrisk, another from Exponent. We'll hire them. But then they decided that if the chrome industry hires them, OSHA might be able to get hold of some of their, their, um, their raw data and their memos. And so they decide to use another trick they learned from tobacco, have their attorneys hire the scientists. Because then all the work is, is considered privileged through various legal um, you know, structures. And all that stuff would be prohibited from getting out into the public. And that's, we have all these contracts on our website. Um, Herman Gibb, who I think may be here, I'm not sure, I, I know. Oh, there he is in the back, thank you. Herman was with the um, Environmental Protection Agency at the time, did a, a very uh, good study of, of this plant in Baltimore, and found, not surprisingly, increased lung cancer risk of people exposed to chromium. And the question, the regulatory interest, if people were exposed at one microgram per cubic meter, they had excess risk of lung cancer. Now, the old OSHA standard, in, in effect at the time, was 52 micrograms per cubic meter. 
So even at one microgram per cubic meter, people exposed for their lifetime at that level would develop or increased risk of lung cancer. So powerful evidence. The chromium industry needed to address this. They tried to get hold of this, of this study. Um, EPA was doing, try to get hold of the raw data to make it go away, but they couldn't do it. So what they did, and this was really fascinating because they were essentially trying to stop this lawsuit to force OSHA to issue a standard, they invented a simulated population and then conducted a study on it. They said, we, they said on the basis of what, what we know about this plan in Baltimore, this is what we think the, the workers should look like. And of course, they conclude there is no excess risk of lung cancer. Well, uh, and then eventually, through the Freedom of Information Act, they were able to get the raw data. And of course, they did another sort of, of, sort of epidemiologic alchemy and made the, the results go away. And they conclude workers who are never exposed above the current uh, permissible exposure level, that's the 52 microgram level, did not experience any lung cancer excess risk. Fortunately, Judge Becker in Philadelphia, who died not so long ago, uh, said that's nonsense and just threw it out and essentially forced OSHA to issue a standard. Now, this is the only health standard that the Bush administration, OSHA, has actually issued. Um, and they were forced to by a federal judge who happens to be a Republican, but still so, um, very upstanding judge. Um, they required OSHA to issue a new standard. OSHA proposed one, a standard of one microgram. So still at the levels of the studies done would still be increased risk of lung cancer, but far better than the level of 52. Um, at one microgram, they figured out that you'd still get seven cancer, lung cancer deaths for every thousand workers, but at least you know, we're much better than before. And they said, OSHA said, please give us Anybody has any information about workers exposed at lower levels of exposure? Because all the studies were done on old factories where people had much higher levels of exposure. Of course, industry used this as a way to say, well, wait a minute, you know, these old studies aren't really relevant. The new factories are much cleaner. You can't go forward until you have you know, studies of new factories. So they begged for new, new, OSHA begged for new data. National Association of Manufacturers, great supporter of, of worker rights, complained and told OSHA that OSHA is relying on 30 to 50-year-old exposure profiles. It's not reflective of modern conditions. Only, OSHA only relies on two outdated studies. OSHA should continue to study the effects at lower levels and not issue a new standard, right? That's the position. More study, more study, more study. Well, just as the comment period was closing, and I'd sent all my, my students to go to the hearings. I was fascinated by this because it's a great teaching opportunity. I read a study that was published in the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine that, frankly, was just a piece of garbage. And you know, the conclusion is there's no, you know, the absence of elevated lung cancer risk may be a favorable reflection of the post-change environment. Some researchers had looked at one of these new factories. Of course, they hadn't looked at it very, for people very long and hadn't looked at very many of them. So you couldn't actually draw a conclusion, but they tried to pretend that this shows that you know, there's no real risk from low levels of exposure. I thought, well, this is odd. And it was funded by the Chromium Chemicals Health and Environmental Committee of the Industrial Health Foundation. So, you know. What's that? So, you know, late one night, I you know did some googling, and, and just by luck, because something was only on the web for a brief period, was a bankruptcy hearing in Pittsburgh. The Industrial Health Foundation had gone bankrupt, and there was a fight over some cr some chromium files, which we determined were actually file cabinets. And fortunately, Celeste Monfortin, who I work, knows how to use the federal court system and get the data from that. And we found, just by cold calling the various creditors in this bankruptcy case a whole trove of, of information, including, and this was most remarkable, a study done by the chromium industry of those low-level exposures, an excellent study looking at four facilities where people had low-level exposure and finding, in fact, 
and this is sort of a, a wonky slide for people who are not interested in epidemiology, but people with fairly low levels of exposure, in other words, their lifetime exposures were the equivalent of about one to six micrograms per year, you know, a little higher than the level that OSHA was talking about getting the level to, so not very high, had a five-fold excess risk of lung cancer. And people at higher levels, you know, above six, had a 20-fold excess risk. You know, this is a wild finding. Not surprising, because we know chromium is a powerful lung carcinogen. But here was the industry claiming you can't move forward because you don't have the studies. And they had the study. It had been finished a couple of years before. And they, they sat there through 11 days of hearings with OSHA never mentioning that the study existed. So of course, I gave it to the um, Peter Lurie at the Public Citizen Health Research Group, who had originally um, filed a petition with OSHA, and he sent it in to OSHA. We put, then we put all this information on into the OSHA docket. And OSHA said, thank you very much. It didn't really affect their, their conclusions. But then a second study came out, paid for by the chromium industry, of a German cohort, where also they essentially conclude that lung cancer risk was elevated only in the highest exposure group. In other words, we don't really need this new study. And we put them together, we realized what had happened here was the industry had taken the old study, which showed a very powerful effect at a regulatory a level of regulatory interest, close to the level that OSHA was going to regulate at. They divide the studies up, change the analyses, publish two studies, neither of which showed anything. And um, here, here's the, the interesting thing. Instead of having a five-fold excess in the intermediate group, they limited the intermediate group, merged it into the low group, compared that to the high group. It's, it's really sort of you know, epidemiologic magic. And all of a sudden, the effect at low levels goes away. And only by you know, essentially finding the, this trove of documents and reading the study was I able to figure this out. No, you know, I imagine a number of attorneys had read it, but they had never put two and two together. So this is the sort of thing we see more and more and more of. Um, and we published this. And, and um, of course, the denouement of the story is, by the end, OSHA pulled back, instead of pushing for a one microgram standard, raised it to five, and they gave the aircraft industry a level of 25. So in fact, this administration can go on record as probably never issuing you know, uh, important new health standards since they, they retreat so far on chromium. Um, so that's one set of issues is around doing these bad studies. The other thing which I want to talk about is the interpretation of studies. In some ways, this is more insidious. Um, and I, my, I will make the case here that scientists with financial conflict interests can't be trusted to provide a reasonable um, interpretation of scientific data. And I talk about this all through the book, and we have it all up on defendingscience.org, our website. Um, let's talk about Vioxx. Vioxx is a subject everybody knows about. It's not esoteric like chromium. Um, Vioxx was approved by the FDA in 1999. When you go back and look at this, you could see that in the early days, the first studies that were done led themselves to some conflicting interpretation, but not so conflicting now when we look at it. Independent scientists disagreed with Merck scientists. Eventually, the truth was reached because in this case, the first studies involving Vioxx involved comparing Vioxx to a leave or naproxen because essentially they were done as a painkiller. We already have a number of good painkillers. But later, a study was done comparing Vioxx to a placebo because it was a test essentially to see if Vioxx prevented colon polyps, and there is no treatment for that. So we have this placebo data after we have data comparing Vioxx to Aleve. So at the very beginning, now this is 2001, years ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a review by three very respected cardiologists, not associated with Merck, who looked at the data and said, look, it's pretty clear here, the patients taking Vioxx had more than twice the risk of heart attacks as the ones taking a leave. Powerful you know, findings. Merck 
scientists working not just for Merck, but for, at, paid by Merck, but working at some of the major medical centers across the United States, replied, no, you can look at these studies two different ways, and either Vioxx is causing heart attacks, or what we believe is Aleve, naproxen, is preventing heart attacks. Now, we don't have a drug that prevents 60% of heart attacks. If we did, we'd put it in the water supply. <laughs> but they published over and over again saying the difference really here is that Aleve is cardioprotective. Now, eventually, that study, the, the real truth came out when the placebo trial was done, um, September 2004. This is three years later. Hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, took Vioxx in the meantime. Um, Vioxx was withdrawn from the market September 2004. By then, 20 million people had taken the drug, and FDA scientists estimate somewhere between 88,000 and 140,000 heart attacks occurred in the United States alone because of this. So we're not talking about a trivial problem. This is a public health disaster. Uh, we see the same campaign, the same approach, in many cases by the same tobacco scientists, much more widely now. Uh, there's a famous memo from Frank Luntz, the political consultant who is now a Fox news analyst and, and um, focus group leader who wrote to the Republican Party, and this is also uh, in the, about 2003, essentially saying the title of this memo was Winning the Global Warming Debate, an overview. Um, and he wrote, and this is very clear, it's right out tobacco, the scientific debate remains open. Voters believe there is no consensus about global warming within the scientific community. Should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled, their view about global warming will change accordingly. Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue in the debate. That's what's going on right now, except that was a few years ago. Right now, there is no credible scientist who could get up and say humans aren't the cause of global warming. Um, President Bush even has acknowledged that humans are the cause of global warming. So we're now on global warming denying 2.0. What's going on is we see the same debate over the public health effects, the public health impacts of global warming. You know, is there really an effect? We saw that um, Dr. Julie Gerberding was supposed to testify in front of Congress, and the White House censored, took six pages out of her testimony. Exactly what's going on. We're, they've moved to, you know, they, they've essentially moved the defense line, you know, back a little bit, but they're still going to argue over the same points. Um, and you can see it over and over again in so many different fields. I, I, you know, my book is filled with examples. Um, you know, the um, the soft drink industry was battling to maintain the right to sell soda and sweetened drinks in schools. So the same scientist, the tobacco scientist, produced a model showing that soda from school vending machines doesn't contribute to the rise in childhood obesity. They publish it. You know, they put out the press release. It's out there. The, um, you know, in the early days of cell phones, the discussion of should cell phone driving while using a cell phone be banned. The, cell phone, the companies involved in telecommunications paid for a number of studies, a number of critiques that showed that driving while holding and talking on a cell phone leads to very little or no increased risk of, of injuries, of accidents. We know that's nonsense, but they produced those studies. Now, you know, they're forgotten, but in the early days of that debate, they were still, they were part of that debate. The gasoline additive, M MTBE, just a big settlement on that, um, contaminated water supplies across the country. Um, State of California classified it as a possible carcinogen. So the um, producers of, of that chemical contacted one of these companies, Exponent or Chemrisk, I can't remember which one. Uh, they produced a study first showing it's not really dangerous. And then when Tom DeLay tried to get legislation passed that the taxpayers would pick up the cost of the cleanup, their economists produced a study saying the, the cost isn't going to be very high. So Congress would be more willing to buy into it. Um, that, you see it over and over again. As Lily Tomlin said, no matter how cynical you become, it's never enough to keep up. Um, I think we can do something about it. I think there are some very clear policy 
directions to take this. The first is something I call Sarbanes-Oxley for science. And just as Sarbanes-Oxley was brought in to essentially help clean up some of the outrages around filings around the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, we need transparency, full disclosure, and publication of sponsor involvement in and control of studies. And what was the role of the sponsor? Did, were the studies done under contracts that said um, you know, sponsors could, could publish, could look at things before they're published, as we just saw there's a New York Times an article last week that Philip Morris controls publications from a Virginia university. That should be fully disclosed. There sh that shouldn't be allowed. Um, we need equal treatment of public and private science. Right now, there are all sorts of rules regarding um, any study done by a federally funded researcher, industry, or anyone wants can get the raw data, but if industry does the study, the raw data can be secret. And most importantly, I think we should be making sure that scientists who have a financial conflict of interest cannot be on federal advisory committees. Because if they are, essentially, we can't trust their advice. The, the Vioxx example is very clear and very tragic. I think scientists with financial conflict of interest have clouded vision. They can't see the truth in front of them. Um, one thing I try to do with the book is put all these documents, all these smoking guns up on our website, defendingscience.org. So people can go to this website and, and download these documents and see exactly what I'm talking about. I think they're very powerful documents. They speak for themselves. So I'd love you to do that, and um, I'll take some questions. Thank you, David. So why don't we uh, first ask for any questions from journalists in the room, as we uh, do in Washington. Uh, any, any questions from journalists first? Any would-be journalists? And then those of you, yes, yeah, would-be with everybody's uh, one of those. And then uh, anybody with a PhD want to ask a question? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Washington. Everybody's got a PhD. Uh, so why don't we start here, man? And we will be bringing a microphone around so we can get you on record. Thanks for your presentation. You mentioned transparency and disclosing conflict of interest. Uh, to me, we're going to be using lots of meta-analyses, lots of systematic reviews of the literature and comparative effectiveness that is now being advocated, for example, for drugs and devices and procedures. But to me, a key transparency would be transparency of the criteria you use to admit a particular study to your meta-analysis. And I think unless people know that, then they can't really judge what's gone into the pot of what's being analyzed. No, you're absolutely right. We're asking people to identify themselves also? Oh, yes, please. I'm Karen Teal right. from Patent Box. Thanks for joining us. Uh, absolutely. I think there are two issues. One is the work that's done, especially in these sort of data syntheses, meta-analyses, things that take into account many different studies, we have to see exactly what goes into it and what doesn't go into it. But I think the bottom line, though, is the because it's such an issue of interpretation that the interpretation really has to be done by scientists who don't have a financial conflict of interest. You know, there was a uh, a huge uproar a couple of years ago when the National Institutes of Health had a panel that opined on what level cholesterol um, should trigger different taking different sorts of statin drugs, and it turned out seven out of those eight scientists who were on that panel had a financial connection to the the drug makers who make these statins. And of course, many people were skeptical, say, well, can we believe this? Well, we, we can't have advice given in a way that's questionable, that raises that level of skepticism. These are multi-billion dollar decisions. They involve people's health. They involve our future. We can afford to hire scientists. The government can pay for scientists who have no connection if they have to even to learn a new field so they can look at the data independently and objectively. Um, this lady here. Please wait for the microphone and, and please identify yourself. 
Sorry, I'm Shale Fischecker. I'm at the Government Accountability Project. And I'm saying this in the absence of reading your book and just listening today. But I want you to address a little bit with conflicts of interest. I mean, there's not really, I mean, there's laws that facilitate and encourage scientists to hook up with industry. We're not really addressing when we talk about the absence of conflict in research why scientists are going for industry money. I mean, there really is an absence of federal funding there. So I think if you don't address that problem, I think you're kind of missing an important part of why this is happening. Sure. And it's very hard for scientists to get up in front of a room and not call for more federal funding of science. And that's, you know, we're taught that day one in, in you know, graduate school. No, but that's absolutely true. But industry has the right to do their own, to do their own studies, and that's important. They can do their studies. But I'm talking about the studies that go into regulation that we think about. They really do have to be done independently. And obviously, that has to be funded. And I'd like to see the government obviously fund more things. But it's not unreasonable for companies to do their own science. I think when that happens, though, the raw data, all, everything should be made available to any interested party if we're going to be making important policy decisions on the basis of those studies. And I think that, that's a bottom line rule that I think can be implemented. Next, sir. Uh, my name is Jim Ellenberg. I'm a retiree. Uh, <laughs> I want to congratulate you, uh, David, for an uh, extremely well-written book. Uh, it's uh, uh, a very good read. Uh, it's a read that makes you very angry about the harm that has been done to thousands, perhaps millions of people, uh, ruined lives, uh, killed people. Um, you demon you, you uh, use a number of examples in your book how the government has uh, cease to collect information or stop reporting information when they don't like the results of that information. Uh, can you give us some examples of how the administration is using science or manipulating science uh, for their own ends today? Yeah, th thank you for asking that. That's a very um, important question. I devote a big portion of the book to the Bush administration because they have essentially taken this strategy of manufacturing uncertainty, and they've institutionalized uncertainty. They've built structures into interagency review processes and requirements put on agencies to take into account bad science, to give producers of bad science and producers of no science an ability to question studies. We see it, there was one very um, worrisome attempt, it was called peer review, not the peer review that scientists know about. In fact, most scientists didn't think that what the White House was talking about had anything to do with peer review. But the White House attempted to impose requirement that virtually every federal document go through internal and external reviews that would allow corporations that are affected by it the opportunity to question it and to slow things down. Um, the scientific community rose up in opposition. The National Academy of Sciences wrote a very, very strong letter never seen before that that's in these circles. Most of the major scientific organizations weighed in. And the White House had to retreat, but there still is these requirements. So there is now a new peer review requirement that has essentially stopped several agencies from moving forward at all. There, Congress requires the, environment, the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences to issue a report on carcinogens every year or every other year. Um, we're now four years late into getting that that document out because the agency is trying to figure out how to get it out for peer review because of this new White House requirement. Um, many of the changes forced by the White House on the agencies are done in secret. In fact, the most recent one, which is very discouraging, is 
uh, a requirement that the Environmental Protection Agency's basic documents about chemical risk, called IRIS, I don't, don't need to go into all the details, but essentially they will be reviewed in secret by an interagency process that will allow the Defense Department, the Energy Department, the Agriculture Department to weigh in before public science, public other scientists can weigh in and can essentially force changes which aren't being made by scientists. It used to be this process was all done in the public when scientists from different agencies, from universities, from corporations could come and debate these questions in public. Now, if the Defense Department doesn't like an EPA policy, they can have it changed in secret. We don't allow the EPA to in secret go and change our strategy in Iraq. We let the Defense Department do that. And it's wild that this is going on. It's, it's very worrisome. And the next president, whoever he or she is, is going to have a big problem how to roll that all back, how to, how to raise the bar, because the level of integrity has gone down so far in, in the White House and some of these agencies. Thank you. Uh, Kim Warner from Oceana. Um, a couple of things. When I'm struck that a lot of universities now have centers or other things that are funded by in industry, and yet it all isn't very apparent when something is published under, you know, Ivy League Center for such and such, yeah. and it, you know, it gains a, um, a sense of um, legitimacy that that isn't revealed on who actually funded the study. Sometimes, and I don't know how. What's the best way to, to address that? And also, um, you brought up something troubling with, with a lot of the journals that you said are published by the industry themselves. Is there a way to figure out what industries, is it, does it say trade association or something? Or are the peer review that goes on in these as, as rigorous as in other ones? Because it should be other scientists saying you can't yeah. interpret your data that way. You raise very important points. Um, there are journals that specialize in, in publishing essentially what I view as very questionable analyses. I, I view them as vanity journals. They're put out, they're essentially run by individuals involved in trade associations or consultants to big companies. They'll often publish articles 100 pages long. Now, anybody who's published an article in the leading medical journal will know that the editor always says, make it shorter. Pages in, in journal articles, in scientific journal articles, are precious commodities. And they're delved out very carefully. But some of these journals will publish an article of 120 pages about a reanalysis of a benzene study done by the, for the American Petroleum Institute. The only reason to publish a 120-page article is so someone can walk around saying, look how impressive this is. It's 120 pages. It was peer-reviewed. Believe this, even though, of course, it's totally unbelievable if you're really a scientist. We don't have rules that cover different journals. And what's worse is we actually, the, while the leading medical journals require you to say who paid for the study and what relationship you had to the p people who paid for that study, the regulatory agencies don't have that same requirement. So you could, you know, a chemical company can pay for a study and have it all hidden as to who paid for it. They could publish it in a journal that doesn't have the requirement to provide that. And then they can send it to the EPA or the OSHA or the Mine Safety and Health Administration without ever having to acknowledge who paid for it. Uh, go back here and then we'll come around. Hi, Melissa Goldstein from GW. Um, I suspect that many of these scientists, perhaps most, go into industry thinking that they're going to do the good fight from the inside to try to work from within. I'm wondering what you think about how we can parse that good work out. I think even one of the studies you showed came up with a validated um, response to the chromium industry, but it got squashed by the industry. So I'm wondering how we can find that good work and validate it. And even more so, most scientists who work for industry are honest. 
and what happens is when industry is facing a crisis and they see that a chemical that's of some importance to them has been implicated in a in a, a harm they don't use their own scientists they'll often go outside and find some of these consultants who really are, are very sleazy and know exactly how to work the regulatory system um, and so I think the most important thing though is essentially what I would call regulation by shaming I think people have to have their names on their documents it has to be all public and there has to be a public conversation in the scientific community around this work there's a very well-known professor at the University of Alabama who has published on behalf of the um, some um, litigants in chromium suits a study essentially showing that pre purporting to show that chromium barely causes lung cancer and doesn't cause stomach cancer. It was done for Pacific Gas and Electric, you know, which has been sued a number of times in Southern California. It's the Aaron Brockovich series of cases. Um, just a study that I would fail one of my students if they turned out in a paper like this. And yet it was published in one of these vanity journals. It went through some peer review. It's very important to talk about these and, and you know, essentially point fingers. Now, it's, it's sad to do that and you hate to personalize it, but people should be embarrassed. I think that's very important to do. We'll go back right here. Start with this gentleman. Uh, Mark Gunther from Fortune Magazine. Um, if, as you argue, we can't trust industry science, if the government is relying on people with industry ties, um, how do we sort through the question of risk as either consumers or as a society? I mean, I'd hate to have it left up to the Today Show and Bill <laughs> Moyers to tell us what we can and can't use. I think we have to rebuild the government infrastructure to think about this in a way that uses scientists from universities and, and corporate scientists as well, but in a public transparent system. That, you know, we've had a federal advisory system process for a long time where people can, come, can be asked to be on the advisory panels or to come speak to these advisory panels in public where this is debated out. And that's the only system that's, as far as I can tell, it's going to work. There is no magic number or formula that's going to help us weigh, out, weigh risk. And we're going to care about risk very differently if the risk involves our children versus our parents. We're going to care about differently if it involves future generations or irreparable harm to the environment. But all that has to be discussed publicly. It can't be done behind closed doors. It can't be done using these black box models where we don't understand when it, what went into them. It has to be done by a government that's perceived of taking care of its its population. And we've lost all those things. And it's up to the next administration to rebuild it. Thank you. Um, Jordan Barab, House Education and Labor Committee. Um, I guess personally I'd rather leave uh, rulemaking up to Bill Moyers than, uh, than some, <laughs> some of the people that have been handling it lately. Um, but, but speaking of that, actually, it's a good issue because these debates are now not being fought um, as, as a matter of just dueling regulators or dueling scientists. They're also being fought, obviously, uh, in the public and in Congress. And uh, we saw you know, a rather alarming example of that when, when, when the Republican Congress repealed the ergonomic standard, um, largely on, on the basis of, uh, of calling for more, you know, there wasn't enough science yet, there wasn't enough science yet. People don't understand, and what you make a good point in your in your book that um, we don't need absolute certainty. We can never get absolute certainty, and if we try, people will die as a result of trying. Um, but we need to use the best available evidence. Um, how do we, you know, get Americans in general to understand that we're in a political season? It should be an issue um, right now. Um, we need to get not only Americans to understand it, but the media to understand it, Congress to understand it. And what what can we do aside from? a Sarbanes-Oxley type thing, which is good for the scientists, but isn't necessarily good for convincing the public. That's a, a tough question. I'm hoping other people in this room, in this august body, can answer that question. Um, 
I think the, the media does play a very important role. And certainly the discussions that take place around what hazards are facing the public, and particularly what hazards facing our children, drive the discussion. And if you look at the the reforms that have occurred in the Food and Drug Administration, authorizing legislation over the last 50 years, they've all been driven by concerns about children. When children have been killed by you know, one hazard or another, eventually Congress gets it to the other and say, okay, we need more legislation. And we don't care as much about workers, unfortunately. We should. But um, we've had a number of, of scandalous examples in the last few years of worker exposures, absolutely uncontrolled worker exposures. I and mean, I write about popcorn workers' lung. Diacetyl is a chemical that has killed or crippled dozens of workers in microwave popcorn factories and flavor factories. We could not get OSHA to issue a regulation to protect those workers. We couldn't get even the, the popcorn industry to take it seriously. There was one case of a consumer that was um, brought to the public's attention and you know, was on, I was on Good Morning America talking about it. All of a sudden, it became a major issue. This man has a damaged lung, but not nearly as badly as a lot of the workers do. And every major popcorn company has removed diacetyl from, from the flavoring of, of microwave butter popcorn. Butter, you know, so we need to focus on workers with that, that same concern, because workers are the, the canaries. They, they get a lot of these exposures first, and it's the only way we could really identify them. We can't, we'll never be able to do the studies to, for example, examine the effects of, of breathing chromium in populations that live near these factories or just have general exposure. We have, to, we have to go into the factories and discover what the problems are and then regulate them and protect both workers and the public. Um, let's go to this gentleman in, in the, the white shirt, sir. Did you have your hand up? The, these two gentlemen then, and then we'll move back to that side, and then we'll come back to the front. Uh, my name is Phil Wexler. I'm with the Toxicology and Environmental Health Information Program at the National Library of Medicine. And uh, you did a really nice job in digging, <laughs> digging up the dirt on these places. And I, I, most of your examples are specific substances or chemicals, chromium, Vioxx, tobacco, or some well-established industries. And I was just wondering if you were uh, privy to any information about the public relations slash mercenary scientists industrial complex about nanotechnology. Well, uh, obviously, I don't follow nanotechnology very carefully, but there is an interesting story in the book. You know, the, the building block of all these nanomaterials is carbon black. And carbon black has been studied for quite a long time. In fact, there are lots of indications that carbon black is a carcinogen. It causes lung cancer. Um, there was a study done a few years ago, a couple of studies actually, showing excess lung cancer, a couple of it didn't. The International Agency for Research on Cancer which is the branch of the World Health Organization that categorizes carcinogens, was scheduled to have a meeting a couple of years ago to consider carbon black. And now IARC only looks at peer-reviewed studies. And they had their panel together. They had all their studies ready. The weekend before the panel was about to meet, overnight mail, in overnight mail, six new peer-reviewed studies arrived. They'd been presented at a conference a month before and peer-reviewed in two weeks which is unheard of in the scientific community, in a fast-track peer review system by one of these journals that I think is a little questionable. And there, the journal was paid extra money to do a fast peer review, all showing that the original studies were wrong. As a result of that, perhaps, the um, International Agency for Research on Cancer said it was a probable carcinogen, not a definite carcinogen. So it's certainly out there. And I, um, if someone had access to the memos that went behind those studies, I would be very interested in seeing them. Uh, hi. Um, first of all, David, congratulations. A really outstanding book. Um, my name is uh, Jim Weeks. I'm 
with the United Mine Workers and, and others. Um, the, you're telling of the um, uh, popcorn lung problem has its predecessor in a novel by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, uh, who is aiming to alert people that the harsh conditions in the slaughterhouses and uh, out came the FDA. He said, I aimed for the heart of America and I hit her in the stomach. So it, it's not, it's happened before. But the question I wanted to raise is about the precautionary principle, which is an attempt um, to sort of change the terms of debate. Instead, of, you know, given that there will be errors, you err on the side of safety rather than on the side of, of risk. And you, you know, try, uh, or put it another way, they have to show that something is safe rather than us have to show that it's harmful or something. To, you know, there's more to it than that, obviously. But, and you gave a kind of passing reference to it in your, in your book. But I wonder if you could say some more about that and what your thoughts are about just the attempt to change the terms of the debate, like that book that guy at Berkeley says, don't call it an elephant, or I forgot what it's called. Yeah. Uh, the precautionary principle is an interesting idea, but I think it's a very blunt instrument. And I think it could be used very crudely. And so it ends up not being effective. I think it's useful in changing the debate and to say, yes, we should be looking at chemicals as potentially dangerous and, and determining whether or not they're safe. But we can't always determine with any degree of certainty how safe they are. So I think it's, it's a piece of the debate. But really what we have to do is look at each potential hazard you know, at, you know, by itself and say, OK, what's going on here? What do we know? We obviously can't change the economy overnight. But we have to be raising these issues and saying, OK, you know, Here's, here's some substances we just don't know about. You know, the chemicals, they're used in um, you know, waterproof linings and, and um, all sorts of pesticides. We just don't know enough about them. And until that point, we certainly should be phasing them out or, or reducing exposure. That's the best we can do. Um, fortunately, in Europe, there's, there's great pressure and legislation now to force chemical companies to do more testing. And still, it's a pretty rudimentary testing, but the REACH program, which is in effect in Europe now, will, will give us some answers that we certainly as, as Americans will benefit from greatly because we'll have some information that we didn't have previously. What we don't have, though, here now is the mechanism to do anything with that information. We don't have regulatory agencies that are willing to step forward and say, okay, how do we limit exposure to these things? In, on this side of the room, so why don't we go back to this gentleman who's with the blue shirt, and then, and then we'll come back. Hi, I'm Bill Hersey. I'm with EPA and the Professionals Union at EPA headquarters. And I wanted to uh, raise a point about uh, academe and integrity in, in, in that uh, venue. Um, in, in 2004, Chester Douglas, who's a professor uh, in the Harvard School of Dental Medicine, testified before a National Research Council committee, uh, committee that was looking at EPA's drinking water standard for fluoride. Um, saying that he had found no connection between water fluoridation and osteosarcoma. And as it turned out, uh, some diligent members of that NRC committee went back and found a dissertation on which Mr. Douglas' signatures appears, uh, finding just the opposite. In fact, that uh, one of his doctoral students' dissertation found uh, a seven-fold increase in osteosarcoma risk in young boys in the pre-adolescent growth uh, spurt phase if they had been drinking fluoridated drinking water. A complaint was raised uh, about uh, uh, Professor Douglas's testimony, and Harvard investigated this, uh, finding that he did not, quote, intentionally 
unquote, uh, commit scientific uh, misconduct. But Harvard has uh, kept sequestered all the documentation around that, around that investigation. Um, and as it turned out, uh, uh, Chester Douglas was taking money from Colgate for many years and had contributed a million dollars to Harvard. So th there are some issues to be, to be dealt with there in, in, in that uh, venue as well. Uh, let's go back to uh, the gentleman in the, in the far back, Merrill, and then the uh, lady here, and then we'll come back to the front. Hi, David. Merrill Guzner with the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Uh, I have the fortune of having read your book. It's very well written, David, and you ought to be congratulated, and I think your mother will be very proud. <laughs> uh, she is. Thank you. Uh, this is actually a follow-up <laughs> question to Bill Hersey's question because, you know, the Vioxx study appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, yeah. and, a, and a lot of science is gray. And we're really, science has become a contested terrain. Uh, you know, you, in the book, I think you uh, focus most of your attention on the sort of grievous cases where they really are scientists for hire. But in regulatory science, a lot of it really is, you know, is it going to be eight parts per million or seven parts per million? And scientists, many of them industry funded, will obviously go for the higher standard and then some who are government funded or uh, will, you know, maybe push for a more lower standard. And it becomes the sort of contested terrain, and, and the doubt is, is there sort of in the science, and you can't, it's not clear cut that it's sort of the science for hire that you're looking at. So my question becomes, you have a couple of paragraphs near the end of the book where you talk about Sarbanes-Oxley for science, where you actually raise the possibility of government-funded science or, you know, uh, where maybe a user fee system as actually being the more ideal way of determining regulatory science and the kind of comment that you've already commented on here today. Can you think of some good reasons why this would be good for industry to go that route, go that path? Well, I, I think so. I think certainly with the, you know, as the level of skepticism in the American public around industry science rises, I think industry will want good science. I mean, we certainly see whenever there's a crisis, industry wants regulation. I mean, the best example is you know, the toy industry wanted nothing to do with the Consumer Product Safety Commission until you know, leaded toys from China started arriving. All of a sudden, they said, please, 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 you know, give us, we need your stamp of approval. And I think the, the drug industry right now is facing a lot of skepticism. And that's probably the first place to think about this, that right now we have a system where drug companies pay for clinical trials. They give the raw data. You know, they don't even give the, the interpretations to the FDA. They give the raw data to the FDA to, so the FDA can actually analyze it for themselves because the FDA knows that the interpretations done by drug companies are not, very, are not of great interest to them. But there are problems even with the raw data. And there have been a number of scandals that have come out where Physicians who have enrolled patients essentially just, you know, look the other way when enrolling the wrong patients or just sending in results. It's re with enough turmoil, you think industry would want this. The, the model is not a bad model. It's bureaucratic. It's going to cost a lot of money, but the money is being spent anyway. Essentially, you could have a National Institute of Drug Testing or National Institute of Chemical Testing. When a company wants a drug tested or a chemical tested, they say this is, you know, the agency will say this is what it will cost you. And the um, agency will find independent scientists to do the studies. That's a reasonable way to go. It's a big step forward, but certainly it's a discussion we're having now that 10 years ago would be unthinkable. And there have actually been a number of editorials in, in the leading medical journals calling for this because the editors of the medical journals are so furious about essentially what they see as being lied to by the drug companies. So I could see as, as these scandals continue, I could, I could see how there actually would be some industry um, acquiescence to this, especially in the drug industry where you really do want the best information and 
companies don't want to be essentially labeled as being you know bad actors. One more question back here, and then we'll come back to the front. Hi, Heron Greensmith, National Abortion Federation. I'm just wondering if you could speak briefly about the media as a filter between scientific community and the public, and more specifically, how we can promote um, better review, objective review of these studies. Well, that's a great question, and the media certainly is a filter. I mean, that's how most most Americans get their information directly from you know print or TV, or indirectly, other people you know pick it up in print or TV and then they they repeat it to their friends. Uh, one thing that we've seen was true until recently is most journalists looked at the reporting of science, especially anything around controversy, as sort of a, you know, there must be two sides to this story. And so they would get, the re if there's a, a new chemical that's been identified as being hazardous, or these studies about global warming being the best example, uh, reporters have always felt they need to get uh, the opposite opinion. And that sort of, you know, on one hand, on the other hand, approach really has been uh, criticized, especially I think the best examples around global warming, because you know, there's a, a small number of industry-paid skeptics, deniers, um, who we see in every article saying, no, it's just not true. And they have no credibility in the scientific community, but reporters don't understand that. Now, I think the leading environmental reporters have seen this. And so they, if they do have to quote one of these you know, global warming deniers, they'll say, well, this is a you know, ExxonMobil-funded scientist who you know, has no training in this field or something like that. So they, they understand it enough to, be, to put enough qualifiers on so, so people discount it. And that's important. And I think we should be raising this with reporters when we talk to them, saying, look, there are two sides to this story. Or if there's another side, you have to say the other side really has a, a strong vested financial interest in promoting their position. If you're going to present that, you've got to present this information as well. Actually, the Center for Science and the Public Interest and Merrill Guzner have done a great job in calling newspapers to task when they, when they don't do this. And I think they're, they're getting the message. And that's a very important um, reminder we have to give to reporters when we talk to them. One last question right up here. Thanks for your great presentation. I'm Diane Sines. I'm with Oceana, which is an ocean conservation group here in DC. Um, you mentioned the issue of uh, harm to children as being a driving force in encouraging regulation or litigation. Um, I, would you comment on the recent controversy over bisphenol A? Um, and I, I was sort of cheered by how um, news coverage of exposure to that chemical um, was raised as a really, really harmful um, issue and how the press really um, drove uh, regulation and also businesses dropping bisphenol, the use of bisphenol A and, and plastic products and can linings and children's toys and teethers and that sort of thing. Also mercury, mercury doesn't seem to ever go away either in terms of uh, the problems of exposure through fish and, and um, other sources. So. Um, if you could comment, for example, on the NIEHS controversy with uh, regulation of bisphenol A and, and also mercury. Well, bisphenol A, is a, it's a fascinating subject to look at sort of how the science has developed. You know, this is a chemical that may or may not cause harm to humans. We don't know. It isn't well studied. It can't be very well studied in humans. We don't know how to study it yet. Um, but it's a chemical we're all exposed to. Upwards of more than 90% of us have bisphenol A in our body. We know that because the Centers for Disease Control has a biomonitoring program and it's seen in everybody's urine. So we're all exposed to it. We don't know exactly how we're exposed to it, though it's in all these Nalgene bottles and 
you know, obviously our children, our babies are exposed to it somehow, and perhaps it's leaching in from the bottles that had until recently bisphenol A. The scientific literature is fascinating because there are hundreds of studies on bisphenol A, and depending on what methods you use, you can show that it causes harm in animals or it doesn't. And so the discussion is not so much does it cause harm in animals, but which animals does it cause harm in, and what's important in terms of extrapolating that to humans. Now, industry has paid for a number of studies that show no effect, and they've paid for a number of, of um, exercises where they put all the literature together, where the scientists say, no, there's no effect. There have been a couple of federally funded um, attempts to do that, which have mixed results. Some have shown, some of the scientists have concluded there could be something here, and some have said that there aren't. But this is maybe, and this gets back to the precautionary principle, is this a chemical we need? And given that we can't show that it's safe, and there are, as I said, hundreds of studies, and of the studies paid for by government, done by researchers at universities, 90 plus percent of them show an effect on the animals at very low doses. So if you think that those studies are extrapolatable to people, we probably should get rid of the chemical. Obviously, industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, would prefer not to extrapolate those studies to people, but to extrapolate only the studies that don't show an effect. And so this is what the debate is over. And the most recent report, it's a draft report by the National Institute for Environmental um, Health, uh, the National Toxicology Program, has said, we, we're not sure. It's possible there are effects. And that was enough to drive the market change, that the big vendors said, OK, we're going to pull it out of our, of our baby bottles. And what's interesting to me, though, is this hasn't solved the problem. The market can't solve these problems. Walmart and Target may stop selling these, but you know, I will bet anyone here $20 that the dollar store will keep selling those products, just as they kept selling you know, the tainted candy and, and toys from China. So if we really care about protecting people, this is we can't let the market just be the, the response here. We have to, the government has to make a decision. So thank you all very much. So thank you, David, and thanks to you for joining us. I want to point out that American progress is not going to go away on these issues. Uh, we have a continuing interest in science policy and scientific integrity. Um, some of you may not know that we have a, uh, an electronic journal called Science Progress, uh, scienceprogress.org, and our first hard copy uh, issue will be released and celebrated at an event on June 13th at 2 o'clock here at CAP where Neil Lane will be keynoting and a number of distinguished scientists and science policy experts will be uh, will be speaking. Um, so we hope that we will see you back here on June 13th at, at 2 o'clock. Uh, I, I want to thank uh, Reese Rushing, my colleague here, for, uh, for booking uh, David Michaels and for facilitating the event. Uh, Andrew Pratt for doing the scienceprogress.org interview with him, which you can read. Uh, and the events team, our amazing events team here at CAP, led by uh, Christine McDonough, the unflappable Christine McDonough. Uh, and um, I, I regret that we couldn't take all your questions and comments, but uh, the book is called uh, Doubt Is Their Product, uh, and uh, David will be, I think, happy to talk to you and even sign copies uh, of the book uh, in, the, in the back. Um, and uh, we hope to see you again at many other events at CAP, and uh, uh, thank you very much for coming today. Thanks to David again.